Last week we kicked off a four-week series called The Big Words. Life in and through Jesus Christ. And our first big word was sanctification. It's not a word the world uses, not a word the world is even that familiar with. It is a richly theological word that tells us something about who God is, that tells us something of who we are, and defines for us how He sees us. Last week we borrowed John Piper's working definition, and here it is. Sanctification is progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. So that over time, little by little, we start to look like Him. We start to talk more like Him, respond more like Him, and love more like Him. If you were with us last week, you would remember sanctification has two distinct parts. Positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Now you see why we call this series big words. They're mouthfuls. Positional sanctification means this. That if you've believed in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Him, that you are considered positionally sanctified. What that means is your position before God has changed. You are declared holy. You are declared righteous. And not on the merit of your work, not on the merits of your good deeds, or even your potential. No, you are declared holy and righteous because of the completed work of Jesus Christ at the cross. We see this concept throughout the New Testament. You see it in statements like you've been raised with Christ in Colossians 3, a passage we'll spend some time in in the next couple weeks. Or that you were chosen and adopted and redeemed in Ephesians 1. That something has happened to you. And it happened in the past. And it fundamentally changed your identity. And secondly, there's progressive sanctification. Which begins at the moment of belief. And then is the process by which your life starts to look more and more like Jesus. Until He returns or you die. We see this distinction of positional versus progressive sanctification most clearly in Hebrews 10.14. We walked through it last week, but here's the verse. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see it. He has perfected in the past. For all time, it cannot be altered or changed. Those who are being sanctified A continuous verb of always moving. You are declared righteous. You are declared holy. And then you become righteous and holy. Sanctification declares your new identity. And then it changes your behavior. As your new identity starts to bear fruit, the change that happens in you starts to show. Starts to bear fruit. It's that moment of a caterpillar crawling and forming a cocoon which becomes a chrysalis which forms that caterpillar into a butterfly. Its nature is changed. It no longer crawls on the ground. It flies. And that's you. Now friends, I want to pause for a moment before we take this any further to point out 
that this series and these sermons on sanctification are only for believers in Jesus Christ. I made that distinction last week, and I'll make it for the next two. That doesn't mean that if you're with us and you don't believe in Jesus that you can't listen. But it does mean that you can't declare its truths for you. It means you can't claim these promises as yours. We're going to say some things that are distinctively true about believers in Jesus Christ and their position in Jesus Christ. And it's essential for you to follow that, that you believe in Him. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13, I think it's one of the most important verses in the New Testament. And you also were included in Christ. How do you become in Christ? Paul tells you. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. For these promises to be true of you, you must be in Christ. And as Paul puts before us that we must be in Christ, how do we do that? You must hear the word of truth, the gospel, and believe. You must hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty that your sin deserved. And on the third day, He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and thereby purchasing for you a right relationship with God the Father and eternal life. You must hear the gospel and believe. This is essential because if you miss it, if you skim over this, you will suddenly buy into a message of works, thinking that you have to achieve in order to be approved by God, believing that you must accomplish things for God to accept you. And worse, you might falsely think of yourself as a believer. Friends, if you believe, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this morning we have the sweet privilege of speaking some of the sweetest truths you ever hear. Because as we step into this theology, there's some extraordinarily sweet truths for believers. For this morning, our big word is justification, which is a fancy word for positional sanctification, which is a fancy term for the reality that because of the cross of Jesus, you are forgiven for all of your sins and that you have been deemed righteous, that you have been deemed holy in the sight of God, which means this, When God the Father looks at you, He does not see you in the muck and the mire of your sin, but rather, when He looks at you who have believed in Jesus Christ, He sees you in the glorious righteousness of His Son. And that is jaw-droppingly amazing. That you who are once an enemy of God who chose your own path, who could do nothing of your own merit to earn His attention or His affection, He steps into that, sends His Son to die for you, and He declares you innocent.
declares you righteous. He declares you justified. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines the justification this way. Justification. An instantaneous legal act of God in which, two parts, he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And he declares, part two, us righteous in his sight. There's an incredible phenomenon that happened at the cross. There's a double imputation, another huge word. It means that on the cross of Jesus Christ, your guilt was imputed into Christ. It means He takes on all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your sin. All of that goes on Jesus at the cross, and when He's crucified, it all dies with Him. And subsequently, His righteousness, His innocence, His holiness is imputed into you. So the innocent dies as the guilty man, and the guilty man is declared innocent. That's justification. It is an act. It is a one-time event. It's not a process. It's something that God has done. Not something you can do on your own. On one hand, it means to acquit. We can find that throughout the Old Testament. And on the other hand, it means to be declared righteous. That you're completely forgiven and you're declared righteous. And it necessarily changes your identity. But listen to this. It does not change your behavior. We'll lean into that in the next couple weeks. Justification changes your identity, but it doesn't change your behavior. You are deemed holy, but you aren't holy. You are deemed righteous, but you may not be righteous. You are declared sanctified, and then you follow through in sanctification. It is a process of sanctification that starts at the moment of justification when your identity is shifted. And it changes how God views you. It means regardless of the fact that you have sinned, and that because of your sin you are separated from God, and because you're separated from God, your sin ultimately merits you eternal damnation before a holy God church, Hold on to that for at least a minute. That's something believers who've grown up in their church their whole life never really consider. They don't really lean into the fact that your sin really does merit you hell. It's one of the reasons people who come to faith later on in life are so much more evangelistic. We don't get that our sin actually merits us hell. We'd find that throughout the Scriptures. God deserves... We deserve for a righteous and a holy God to damn us. And despite that, because you've believed in Jesus, you've been completely forgiven. Your slate has been completely wiped out. Christ's righteousness has been completely imputed into you, and you have received His 
righteousness. Friends, let's open up our Bibles to Romans 3. There are several places we're going to find this in Scripture this morning to make it abundantly clear for us. Romans 3, verse 21, starts this way. But, if you're an English grammarian, you would note that a word like but is a contrast word. It's drawing a contrast between something and something else. He's declared a truth for you, but... This is entirely true, but... And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you should know that the whole first section of Romans, kind of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 19, all exist to declare a reality that you cannot on your own merit obtain righteousness. That nobody can. That you cannot obtain a right relationship with God. You cannot get good with God on your own. That's the whole first three chapters of Romans prior to verse 21. And so in 21, he starts by saying, but. So if you can't get righteous on your own, if you can't get right with God, how do you? So Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul writes, In the Old Testament, there was a plan. It was follow the law, do everything correctly, obey this perfectly, and you'll be acceptable to God. Follow all of the rules, and you'll be righteous. In the New Testament, a new way of righteousness has been manifested. It's not follow the rules. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's a righteousness is attributed to you by your faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in Jesus Christ. And it does not matter who you are. On a side note, if we were Moving all the way through Romans, you'd see this distinctions he's making between how Jews are supposed to accept God versus how Gentiles are supposed to come to God. And is there any difference? So then he says in the end of verse 22, for there is no distinction between God's natural people to those God will adopt, the Gentiles, which I'm guessing is you and me. I know it's me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is the first key truth to justification. That you have sinned. That you are a sinner. That you fall short and that you've fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether you stole cookies or cars. You've been declared guilty. But, as someone who's believed in Jesus, there's a second truth in verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have been redeemed through Jesus. You've been paid for by Jesus. 
The penalty for your sin has been paid for. Friends, consider this for a moment. Many people struggle with the idea that God is a judge and that He's standing ready to condemn you at a moment's notice. But what the Bible tells us is God is indeed a judge. And He's a good judge. And He's a right judge. And He demands justice. Rightly. But what you find in God's justice and in the demand of His justice that this good judge, rather than asking you to pay the penalty, sent His Son to pay the penalty for you. You've been justified. You've been declared innocent as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Which means this. If you've believed in His Son, when you stand before Him in judgment, the good, the righteous, and the holy God, the judge, who knows everything you've ever done, knows every thought you've ever had. absolutely love the quote by Chesterfield that says, if anyone should think badly of you, you should agree with him, for you are far worse off than he thinks you to be. God knows every ounce of who we are. And in that moment, because of Jesus, He will declare you innocent. Not by your works. Not because of a great testimony. Not because of the merit of anything you've accomplished, but the work of His Son. You are justified by His grace as a free gift through Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. We'll talk through that word in a minute. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and be the justifier who has of, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, the Scriptures put forward that this is a God of justice. And the reality that our sin separates us from Him, the penalty must be paid, and it's paid for by His blood. That's the word propitiation. The penalty has been paid for. And you've received it by faith. And this is the justice of God. That your sin required a penalty. And it was paid for by Him. His justice was satisfied. And because of that, you've been declared legally innocent because somebody took the penalty on your behalf. And it was Jesus. This is justification. This is positional sanctification. That by completed work of Jesus Christ at the cross, if you've believed in Him, you are legally deemed innocent before a holy God for all of eternity. Your nature has changed. We also see this in Ephesians 
chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the possessions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul describes life before Jesus Christ. That you were dead. And church, we have to get that right. You were dead. You weren't morally insufficient. You weren't crippled in need of a crutch. You were dead. And what the Scriptures declare is you had the fruit of a dead man. You chased your passions. You were driven by selfishness and selfish desires. And absolutely, this can mean stealing cars and using drugs and prostitutes and as bad as you want to paint it. But it just as easily can mean you lied to your parents and you were full of pride. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I have three kids. They're all sinners. Can't pick on Pierce anymore because he's here. Anna Kate is my stingy child. If you ask Anna Kate to share anything with you, she'll say no. She could have a whole pie. Anna Kate, can I have a bite? No, it's mine. She's selfish. You can see her sin in her. It's just very apparent. Anna Kate, can I, can I try that? No, it's mine. I got it. It's my birthday. It's, it's mine. My third child, Claire, is my self-righteous one. If I gave all three of my kids a pie and I said, Anna Kate, can I have a bite? She'd say, no. And Claire would say, Dad, you can have some of mine. Dad, I'll give you some. She's my self-righteous one. Sin comes out of her entirely differently than it does my middle daughter. Again, I can't testify to my eldest. Sin comes out differently amongst us. There are some of us who've done extraordinarily worldly things, and some of us, praise God, didn't wander too far in the world. But it's all sin nonetheless, is it not? Yes. If you ever had one bad thought about one thing, whether you followed through on it or not, the Bible declares you a sinner. You're dead. That's what Ephesians, that's what Romans, that's what the Bible would testify about you. And then we come to verse 4. We get another contrast word, but... Because it's so incredibly distinct what happens after that. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Puts it before you, you were dead. What can dead men accomplish? Nothing. Nothing. Sit in that for a second. If a dead man can accomplish nothing, what could they ever do to to earn God's approval? Nothing. They're capable of nothing. And in your deadness, because of God's mercy, because of His great love for you, 
rather than leaving you dead, rather than leaving you selfish, rather than leaving you in the midst of your sin, which by the way, we all would have chosen to stay there because we thought it was better for us. God the Father sent His Son to the cross. And at the cross, if you've believed in Him, you were made alive. You're given breath. Your whole body was reformed. You're made into a new creation. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 6, And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Friends, lean into that for just a moment. Not only does God the Father send His Son to save you even though you were guilty, God the Father also then raises you up with Christ and seats you with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's beautifully magnificent. So that in the coming ages He might show you the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness. Why does He do it? Because forever He wants to be kind to you. He wants to show you the wealth of His mercy and show kindness to you through Jesus Christ. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, this is justification. This is positional sanctification. That by completed work of Jesus Christ at the cross, if you've believed in Him, you've been legally deemed innocent before a holy God. So that if you've believed in Jesus, the Bible declares that all of these truths are true of you. All of them. That it doesn't matter what you did before Christ. And it doesn't really matter what you've done since Christ. That if you've believed in Jesus, you have been justified. You've been declared righteous. And you have been declared holy. This is justification. It happens at the moment you believe. God looks at you and declares you innocent. Now I've explained it in about four different ways and I've used the Bible to walk through it. Let me bring it down a couple of notches. I want you to think about your position of standing in a courtroom to conf- before a judge who knows everything you've ever done wrong. He's got a pretty thick file, does he not? He's got a stack of people who can testify against you. Does he not? More than we'd care to admit to, right? And in that moment of you walking forward in your guilt and shame to know all the evidence that could be put before the courtroom of all of your guilt, 
of all of your dirtiness, of all of your filth, of all of your pride, in the moment of that shame, you step forward and the judge says, my child, my son will take your place. You are innocent. Go free. If you're a child and you're with us, I know we've got third graders in us, we've got fourth graders, we've got fifth graders, we've got kids bigger than that. I want you to think about the time when one of your siblings did anything, the worst thing you can imagine that's ever happened in your house times 12. It's, it's not just that you didn't clean up your room. It, it's maybe you accidentally light your room on fire. Right? You've done something so catastrophically awful. Maybe you broke a window. I don't know what this looks like. But there's that moment when you sit in your room waiting for mom and dad and you know you're about to get it. Because you're guilty. And in that moment, mom or dad walks into the room and looks at you and says, my child, I love you. But somebody else has taken the punishment for you. Go out and play. It's justification. Somebody stood in our place to take our punishment and it forever changes our identity. It causes us to be alive. It defines us as a new creation. Something created to be different. To be set apart. Your identity sets you apart. And now the Scriptures will call you to live set apart. To live distinctly. That now you are in Christ, there should be some marks that testify that you are in Christ. That your identity has, in fact, changed. And for the next two weeks, that's what we'll be stepping into. What does progressive sanctification look like? What does it mean? What does it mean that God's justification is fully rooted in me? Does it mean that I'm just supposed to believe? I'm supposed to let go and let God per se? Or does it mean that I'm supposed to try as hard as I can and white knuckle my faith as best as I can? What does it mean? What would God call me to? Well, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig into that. But before we do, I want to remind us of one last truth, and then we'll pray. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. I put this verse before you because this is a verse for believers who've been justified to understand that their position has changed, their identity has changed. So that when you seek to pray to God, when you seek to access God, when you seek to talk to God, you don't approach Him as somebody who's in the muck and mire of their sin. Somebody who's ashamed. You get to approach Him as an innocent one. Someone whom He delights in. 
That's why the author of Hebrews says, approach Him with confidence. Not in you, but in Christ. Approach Him with confidence. Come close to the throne of grace. For God the Father longs to meet with you. Let me pray. Father, this morning as we lean into Your Word, we find some incredible and extraordinary truths that You have for us. That for those of us who have believed in You, though we're far guiltier than we imagine, You've declared us innocent. You've declared us righteous. You've declared us holy. Though You have all the evidence in the world of my sinfulness, of the falseness of my heart, of the lies of my tongue, of the lust of my eyes, God, You have it all. You've called me righteous. Not because of who I am, but because of the completed work of Christ. Praise be to God. Thank You that this is a truth, not for me, but for all of us who have believed. We don't have to seek making You proud. We don't have to seek earning Your attention or Your affection. When we've believed in Your Son, You've declared us righteous and holy. You've changed our identity. You've changed how You view us. God, would You be at work in us allowing us to know the depth of our justification. And Father, be at work in us that as new creations we would live the distinct life You've called us to. Father, thank You so much for the abundant grace You've shown us in Christ. Thank You, Father, that You've lifted us and sat us next to Christ in the eternity to show us the crazy amount of merciful grace You have for us and the kindness You want us to see in Christ Jesus. Thank You for all these truths that You've declared true of us, whether we believe them or not. Father, be at work helping each of us to believe each other. That You have adopted us. That we are Your kids in whom You beloved. In whom You're proud of. Thank You. Amen.